You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. Thanks for bringing the church into this place this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here uh, with Crosspoint Peachtree City. Glad that you guys are here with us this morning. Uh, if you're wondering if you're in the right place, uh, we just began a series uh, a few weeks back entitled uh, A Beautiful Mess, where we're working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so uh, if you're living in a world in which things are not as they should be, you're in the right place. Uh, If you look at your life and go, uh, my life is a bit messy in areas. Uh, There uh, are things that are not as they should be, uh, whether it be uh, my own contribution or the ways that I'm sinned against by others or just pain, suffering, death, hurt, the whole nine yards. The reality is that we live in the midst of uh, the world that has gone off course, so to speak, off the beaten path, and yet... We as Christians believe that there's hope in the midst of despair, that there's beauty in the midst of the mess, that there's redemption in the midst of the brokenness, and it comes by way of the person and work of Jesus. And so we'll talk about Jesus later on today. Uh, We believe that he's the hero of all of the Bible from cover to cover, and so he's going to be made much of this morning. But if you look at your life and you go, yes, I need beauty and redemption in the midst of the brokenness and the messiness, then you're in the perfect spot this morning. And so we're going to engage uh, as we continue on with this series, but I want to begin doing so by asking a question of all of us in the room this morning. And the question is this, do you appreciate good design? And, and when I throw out the word design, I'm talking both sleekness, look, and, and also functionality. So I don't know what comes to mind for you, but when I think of inventions of man, I think cell phones. And so mine's Uh, up for renewal right now. In fact, please don't do this, but if you call me, it's quite possible that it will ring with the full-on ringtone because mine just bounces back and forth between vibrate and loud over and over again throughout the day, and and I never know which I'm going to get at any point in the day. So I need a new cell phone, and I've been looking and shopping around, and of course, both of those things come to mind. I want a sleek look to my cell phone, and I also want functionality. I want it to be able to do certain things same thing with cars. Some of you, that's, that's your bent when it comes to vehicles. I want my vehicle to look a certain way. I don't want just functionality, but to be driving around in some heinous metallic thing on wheels. Um, for others of us, you know, it's, yeah, I want something beautiful, but I also want the functionality to go along with it. My wife just got an Ergo baby carry. I don't know if you guys know what, what those things are. If you don't have a baby, you probably shouldn't, but um, that thing is sleek, uh, as, as sleek as things for moms can be. And yet it's super functional. It has four different positions that she can carry our baby girls in. And so she's pretty stoked about that. It's not only with the inventions of man, but also with the creation of God that we see this idea of design come to bear. And so when you think of the sun, the sun has great functionality, right? Uh, If we were just a little bit further from the sun, planet Earth, uh, we would all freeze to death. And if we were just a little bit closer to the sun, we'd all be incinerated in an instant. Um, The sun is where it is with great purpose and functionality to give us life, to bring life to our planet. And yet we see the beauty and sleekness and look of the sun as we engage uh, in a sunset, in a sunrise. That many of you, part of your story is that you've gotten up early at some point in your life to look at a sunrise, 
be it on a beach or on a mountaintop or just in your own backyard sitting on your porch. The trees work the same way. We need the trees in terms of functionality to give us oxygen so that we can breathe and continue to live. And yet, if you look out on the landscape right now at this time of year, the, the trees just look like God took a, a multicolored paintbrush and just slung it all over the wilderness. It's quite beautiful. And so this morning, we're going to talk about God's design, and, and at first glance, as we flip to this morning's passage, you're likely to respond with, how is this design beautiful? I'm not sure I'm seeing it, and so hopefully as we work through the passage this morning, you'll get an answer to that question. Uh, you can go ahead and flip there. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be in verses 2 through 16 this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you nearby, and you could grab that Bible and flip open to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. Uh, we're super stoked that you would walk away from here, the owner of, of a Bible, if you came in not owning one. And so uh, you'll notice as you flip to this morning's passage that the big, bold font subtitle in your Bible likely says, Head Covering. So everybody's really excited that they came this week, right? We're going to be talking about head coverings. Yesterday, my wife, uh, she made the statement, our, our oldest daughter was acting just a little bit off, and we, we thought maybe she's got allergies. I hope she's not getting sick. And my wife said at one point, I really hope she's not getting sick because I want to be at the service tomorrow. And I, I said, oh, cool, you want to, like, be with God's people? You want to sing songs by a competent group of musicians and vocalists? And she goes, no, I want to I hear about head coverings. And at that point, I'm thinking, did you get a hold of one of my commentaries or something? Like, what, what's driving that? Because I've read my commentaries. I know that there's good stuff in this passage, but that's not the typical bent toward passages like this morning's passage. And so my hope is that as we walk through this, that God will reveal some really sweet things to you in terms of the way that he's designed you and I to function in the world as he's created it. So let me begin in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 2, and we'll read through verse 16, and we'll pray, and we'll jump in and get to work. It says this, beginning in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's, that's good logic, right? We'll, we'll get into that momentarily. Nevertheless, verse 11 in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge from yourselves, for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let me pray. God, we give thanks to you for your word this morning, um, including the passages of scripture that have weird subtitles and seem to be uh, antiquated 
in terms of their content. I pray this morning that uh, you would bring to life this passage for us and help us to see exactly how uh, the truth of what we find in this passage uh, crosses the bridge into the context in which we live. God, I pray that you would ultimately help us to see the beauty of the way you've designed the world and the way you've designed us uniquely to engage in this dance that you're calling us into that's been taking place between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit since before the foundations of the world. God, would you do that by the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you awaken our hearts to things that uh, our hearts are dead to coming in this morning? Would you help us to see? Would you help us to hear the things that we need to hear uh, for the sake of your glory and our joy? We lift these things up to you, Father, by the uh, power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so the, the first few verses of this morning's passage really get to the heart of the context that Paul's speaking into, which is crucial for us to understand because Paul's doing something here. If you've been around for any part of this series, you've noticed a pattern that there's great disunity, there's great dishonor, there's great disorder in the Corinthian church. So you go back to the, the very first chapter and people are arguing, I follow Paul, well, I follow Peter. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, you know what? I follow Jesus. I don't follow any of those guys. Um, we, we see uh, dissension in the church over whether you should be married or single and celibate. And, and, and there are factions in the church that we see working from chapter one all the way up into the present chapter. Culturally, the people of Corinth were dishonoring one another. They were looking out for their own best interests rather than seeking the good of other people, they were refusing to lay down their rights, going back to the last couple weeks that we looked at in terms of chapters 8 through 10. And so Paul's asking this question, what does it look like for the people of God to gather in a way that reflects his very character, that God is a God of order, he's not a God of chaos, based on the four times that we see the words dishonor and disgrace in this morning's passage, Paul's driving at the idea of honor, that Paul's saying, I'm fighting for you to honor God's design. That's what chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 is about, the way God has made things to be. And so he starts off with encouraging words in verse 2. He says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So there's some encouragement coming from Paul here. You're doing some things really well. want to affirm that. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Hit pause on this verse. This verse is the crux of everything we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to come back to it in the very end, and so press pause for now. But what I want you to see for the moment is how progressive this morning's passage is. Now, you hear that, and you're going, seriously? Have you, did you read your own commentary? Your wife might have read it, but I'm not sure you did, because we're talking about head coverings and whether men can have long hair and whether women can have short hair seems to be quite outdated. How in the world is this passage progressive at all? But check this out. In verse four, we see that this passage is progressive as it pertains to men. It says this, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. That culturally in, in that day, first century Greco-Roman subculture, pagan worshipers, a.k.a. the irreligious lost, would enter the pagan temples draping their togas over their head. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, you don't have to do that. The gospel frees you from that. 
And on the flip side, culturally, the Jews, the religious lost, those who were trusting in their own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Jesus, wore head coverings as well. And Paul says you don't have to do that as a follower of Jesus either, that the gospel frees you from that too. You see the progressive nature on the side of men. But then if you look at the next verse, we see that this passage is progressive as it pertains to women as well. It says this, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Here's the interesting thing. Up until now, no woman would have been allowed to pray or prophesy in the context of the church gathered. Wasn't even on anyone's radar. And so we hear when we read this passage, a woman needs to cover her head. What they would have heard is, wait, a woman can pray or prophesy? Like, that's allowed? See, here's what we do oftentimes. We bring uh, an Americanized lens to the scriptures oftentimes when we read the Bible and we assume that it was written for 21st century America only. And so we read our culture into the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to speak to our cultural context. But the reality is that for the people in first century Corinth, they would have heard Paul in verses four and five saying things that they would have said, you sound like a left-wing liberal. Are you kidding me right now, Paul, that you would vocalize these things? So what's going on culturally here in these verses? Let me come back to verse four and read through verse six and engage that for a second. It says this, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. The cultural piece that, that Paul's addressing here is this. The, the head covering was a symbol of this woman belongs to this man. Okay, so and, and when I say that, I don't mean belongs in, as in she's his piece of property. I mean belongs as in the sense of, I belong to you, you belong to me, you're my sweetheart. Like that, that kind of loving belonging to one another is what that would have symbolized. And so imagine this morning, um, especially if you're new, imagine this morning we all come in and all the wives drop their wedding rings in a basket in the back and just leave them back there. And then we all come and we gather and we worship as the church collectively. And then when you're done, you just leave and you go grab your ring on your way out. Or imagine men, if we dropped our watches as if this were a swingers party and we went and picked them up on the way out. What would that communicate to people as they came in and looked in on the church gathered? Do these people take marriage seriously at all? One question that would come to mind. And remember, marriage tells the world about how Jesus feels about his bride. That the covenant between a man and a woman communicates something of the covenant between Christ and the church. That for a woman to take her head covering off was a rebellious move on her part, meant to dishonor her husband, meant to dishonor her marriage. And so for us, the question is, is it really about hair? Is it really about head coverings? And the answer is no, it is very much about God's design and our trust in God's design for our own glory and for the very mission of the church as the world looks in on the church. And so I want us to move into verses 7 through 16 where we actually see this design, the way God has created the world to work. Let's read verses 7 through 12, and we'll kind of stop there for a moment and unpack some things. 
Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman, and all things are from God. Okay, what Paul's doing here in these verses is he's taking the church of Corinth back to the beginning, back to creation, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, that if we're going to align ourselves with the way that God has designed the world to work, we have to go back to the beginning. Paul's calling us to look at God's design, how he created the universe and us as human beings in this universe to function. And he argues that God created men and women with a sleekness and functionality about them. And and I love what Paul's doing here. He's a great apologist. He's a great Christian apologist because he knows that people are going to read these words that he's written and they're gonna say, okay, so if we can set aside the head coverings piece of this thing, then we can just set aside the gender roles piece too, right? If we can prove that head coverings and the length of hair for a man and a woman are antiquated ideas, then we can also argue that gender roles are an antiquated idea as well. And so Paul says, no, you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater that most certainly head coverings and, and the length of a man or a woman's hair are cultural issues. They're situational based on the context But by going back to Genesis 1 and 2, Paul says there are just some things that have been true since the foundation of the world that are not meant to be rejected, that when you reject them, you actually reject the way God has designed the world to work. And so I want us to look at some of these things that have been true since the foundations of the world and unpack those so that we can then move out of that and and, uh, begin to engage as a community what it looks like for us situationally to then live that out. And so number one on the list would be this, gender distinction is a part of God's design. Where do we see that in the creation story? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you see this in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then you fast forward a few verses later in Genesis chapter 1, and we're told that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That that God didn't... um, make some cosmic mistake when he created men and women. It wasn't as if he was holding the the scalpel and then all of a sudden a big uh, burst of thunder went off and and he went, oh man, I had this plan and all of a sudden the scalpel went left and and now it's just, it's completely jacked up from what I intended it to be. No, in in chapter one, verse uh, verse 31, he says, all that I've created, including male and female, is very good. Now, we live in a culture that would disagree with that. Um, if you go onto Facebook, and please don't do that now because it would hurt my feelings, but if you go onto Facebook and, and you look at your profile, you can actually edit your gender, and what you'll notice is that uh, there are not just two options of male and female, but there's actually a third option that, that says the word custom, and if you click on that, it pulls up a text box, which then allows you to fill that in with whatever wording you would like to fill it in with. And so essentially what the creators of Facebook believe is that you can customize your gender like you can a cell phone or a vehicle or a baby carrier, that it's completely up to you how you want to 
articulate that particular language. The University of California out in Berkeley, this is very recent, as of the summer, only a couple of months ago, determined that their enrollment applications would now include six choices for gender identity. So if you go enroll at the University of Cal Berkeley, you have the following options. You can choose male, you can choose female, you can choose trans male, you can choose trans female, you can choose gender nonconforming, and then if none of those work for you, there's a junk drawer option, which is that you can choose different identity altogether and don't have to really engage that uh, in any sort of capacity in terms of categorizing yourself. A couple weeks ago on Saturday Night Live, uh, Amy Schumer hosted, and I don't endorse Amy Schumer to be sure she's trash, she's derogatory, she's hilarious, but she's disgusting. Uh, but she did host a couple weeks ago, and as part of her opening monologue, this is what she said. She was doing a stand-up act. She was jumping from one topic to the next to the next. But at one point, she said this. She said, all little girls have for role models these days is the Kardashians. Is it really a great message for little girls, a whole family of women who take the faces they were born with as a light suggestion? And, and the entire room just erupted in laughter. Everybody thought that was hilarious. Like, yeah, let's go after the Kardashians. They're, they're all about Botox and, and facelifting and all these things. Meanwhile, the father of those girls has determined that God got his gender wrong. And that's perfectly acceptable. And in fact, if Amy Schumer had engaged that, she would have been verbally crucified for making a joke about that. That's the world that we live in. What do you do with that? How do you respond to that if you're a Christian? Let me, let me share with you something that God made clear to me in my time uh, in the scriptures this week, looking at this passage that was deeply convicting to me. Um, as I sat with the scriptures, this thought came to mind. Jesus would have befriended Bruce Jenner. Jesus would have befriended the Kardashians. Jesus would have befriended people that I like to stand at arm's length from and belittle rather than engaging for the sake of the gospel. When you read the gospels, you see Jesus encountering characters over and over again, and he pursues them, people that I likely would not pursue, if I'm honest. I wouldn't have gone after the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. I would have been really concerned about my own reputation there. I wouldn't have engaged the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4 because I probably wouldn't have been hanging out in the slums of Samaria to begin with. And yet Jesus engages these people that are on the margin, and the gospel would call us to care and to engage and to pursue people that aren't like us. That the best thing that we can do as a church is, one, we can pursue those who've abandoned God's design for some tragic counterfeit. And then secondly, we can make it our mission to put on display God's beautiful design, to draw people in as a missional bent. That God wants to use your femininity. He wants to use your masculinity for redemptive purposes. Number two, let me get into those distinctions. Woman is God's beautiful design of femininity. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Where, where does this come from in the creation story? This idea that uh, woman is made from man and created for man. If you go to Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, you see these words, as God is creating, he's made 
uh, the animals and the inhabitable domains of the world, the skies, the waters, the land, and he's created Adam as the first image bearer of God. And we're told in chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And if you fast forward a couple of verses, we're told that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. That God created man and determined that man seriously needed some help. Um, this would be a tragic world that we live in if it was one big man cave, okay? It would go south really quickly. We would all ruin it. It'd be covered in Cheetos, right? Like we, we don't know what we're doing apart from women. And so we deeply need women as a part of this story. In fact, the Hebrew word for helper um, in the scriptures is used to describe God at certain points in the way that he engages us. It's not this idea of when your kids help you bake cookies and you use that word, you're helping baby, like, yeah, you're really, and then you look around and there's flour all over the floor and you have to take your kids out in the front yard and just hose them and call that a bath because you can't even get them to the tub because it's so disgustingly messy, right? That's not what the word helper is in Genesis chapter two, verse 18. God is our helper and that doesn't diminish his being. It doesn't diminish his dignity. It's actually a military use, uh, term used oftentimes, meaning reinforcements are on the way. So it's the language of a strong helper. I love the way Richard Pratt explains it in his commentary. He says this. He says, God created it Eve to make it possible for the human race to fulfill the task originally given to Adam. Like, if it was just Adam, the task wouldn't have been completed. It would have been impossible to complete it. He needed strong help to come along reinforcements to engage this task, this cultural mandate that God had called Adam to engage in for the sake of God's glory. Ladies, you play a massive role in this redemptive narrative. That God's design is to use your femininity in redemptive ways. Now to be sure, it's not a call to headship. It is a call to help, and that's why we have uh, Ephesians 5, which says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And we'll get into this in just a, a moment. Uh, that's not a four-letter word, submission. Um, there's a call to, to submission as a submissive helper. But what we're going to see as we move forward is that even men are called to submit. They're called to submit to the call to die. That's what we get to do, men. Uh, we're a submissive head, and women are submissive helpers that we all engage in this task. And bear with me if you're uh, feeling some sort of bristling right now as to what we're talking about. We'll unpack uh, a little bit more of this in just a moment, but for the time being, let me just say that there's a danger for both men and women in distorting the design as God has established it to be, that women have been given this gift of interdependence, of perception, of intuition, of nurturing, things that men typically stink at. For women, the design is distorted when there's a shift toward either one, hyper-dependency, um, super clinginess, you might say, or on the other hand, hyper-feminism, a fierce independence that says, I don't need anybody. I could, I could exist in this world and succeed and maybe even thrive better if there were no men. This was just a woman cave, whatever that is. Um, we need to be careful not to distort the design of God as women. 
fast forward and we'll look at men. I'm going to speak to that a little bit more because I am one and I'm not foolish enough to attempt to unpack the nuances of those distortions on the female side. But uh, as we dive into men, number three, man is God's beautiful design of masculinity. That going back to the story of creation, Adam is created first. Adam names the animals. Adam names the woman. These are acts of leadership. Adam is primarily held responsible for the fall in Genesis 3. That we're told, according to Romans 5, that through the one man, the many became sinners. Paul's talking about Adam there. That for a man, there's a call to bring loving leadership to this redemptive narrative. That God's design is for you to use your masculinity in redemptive ways. And here's what that means. I said it just a moment ago. The calling for a man is a a calling to submit to the call to die. You see that in Ephesians 5 as well. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That men, you get to be like Jesus when he washed the disciples' feet. You get to live sacrificially in a way that puts God's glory on display. Husbands, you get to lovingly care for your wife. You get to engage her and listen to her, not just try to fix all of her issues. Speaking to myself there, Jesus loved his bride by dying for her, by taking responsibility for her, even for her sin. That 1 Peter 1 unpacks it really well. Verse 18, Jesus ransomed his bride with his own blood. 1 Peter 2, 7, Jesus was rejected so that his bride might not be. 1 Peter 2, 21, Jesus suffered for his bride, bearing her sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus was wounded so that his bride might be healed. That the call to live out God's design of masculinity is the call to die for the good of others. Here's what the danger looks like in terms of us men distorting God's good design. Typically distorted when we move towards chauvinism on the one hand or passivity on the other. Let me address passivity first. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, the fall, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but when you look at sin entering the scene, this is what we see. It says this, chapter 3, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, growing up, I always thought that Adam was out scavenging in the woods somewhere, that he was out foraging, looking for berries and nuts and trying to get dinner together. And yet we're told according to chapter 3, verse 6, that Eve gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's passivity at its finest. That you could say it's the equivalent to letting your girl dance with a scumbag while you sit on the sidelines of the dance floor. But that's what Adam did. He wasn't assertive. He didn't engage as the submissive head when Satan came in and sought to deceive his wife. Passivity looks like this. It's the guy who has a reputation for being irresponsible. It's the guy who can't keep a job. It's the guy who's always saying, we really need to blank, but he never actually steps to the plate to meet that need himself. It's the guy who's always looking for an easy way out so that he never has to sacrifice for anyone or anything. The guy who everyone loves but no one respects. That's God's distortion moving towards passivity. Chauvinism, I think we can more readily put our finger on that. These would be some examples of a chauvinistic man. The guy who doesn't hug his wife or his kids because he thinks that showing emotions is a sign of weakness. 
guy who thinks that being a man means hitting the hardest, burping the loudest, um, beating his chest when his favorite football team wins as if he contributed to the scoreboard at all, which he didn't unless yelling gets you points for your team, right? And ironically, this guy probably couldn't have even been a walk-on for that team in the first place, and yet he beats his chest as if he, he actually did something to bring about that victory. This is the guy who intimidates his wife and kids with his harsh, violent temper that rears itself verbally, maybe even physically. This is the guy, and this is deeply convicting to me, um, a guy who's never wrong and will argue until he's blue in the face rather than humble himself, repent, and ask for forgiveness. What does that look like, men? What does that look like, women, in terms of you're living out this design the way God's created you to put on display his glory, and, and how are you moving into distortions of that design, which is crippling your own joy and the very glory that's due God. Number four, we move from this idea of differing roles into equality, that it's a both and, that all human beings are equal in dignity and value and worth. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God, that Yes, Eve may have come from Adam's rib, but every man in this room is here because a woman gave him a home for nine months. That's how that works, right? Every man in this room is here because a woman birthed him into the world. That's not your story, right? I don't get to champion that one as a man. That's, that's the wife's story. They go through that pain of bringing all of us into the world. That's Paul's driving at this idea of equality of image bearers here. Where does this come from in the creation story? Well, again, if you go back to Genesis 1.27, we're told that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That we're both image bearers of God, men and women. When, when Eve, I love this. When Eve was created, Adam burst forth into song because he knew she wasn't like the other ones. You can just picture this, right? All the animals have been created. Adam sees a tortoise walking by and he's like yeah not really attracted to that then a zebra you know kind of passes off in the distance and he's like still not feeling it God and and over the course of time like he sees a variety of animals then all of a sudden bam woman comes into the picture and he just starts singing like he goes into song he bursts forth into song because he says she's not like the other ones in other words she's not an animal She's an image bearer just like me, created with dignity and worth and value, that both men and women have value, and and there's an equality about that. Differing roles, yes and amen. Equal in dignity, worth, and value, yes and amen. And we'll see in just a moment that the Trinitarian God of the Bible establishes all of that for us. But before we get there, number five, this goes along with this equality piece. All human beings are called to be culture makers, both men and women. If you look at Genesis 1:28, we're told this, God blessed them, the man and the woman, and God said to them, the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That God made creation and now we get to use his creation to make culture and, and that's for all of us. That's for men and women alike to engage in that. As Paul finishes out verse 13 and beyond, he he basically argues that everything we've talked about thus far is really just good common sense at the end of the day. He says, verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife 
to pray to God with their head uncovered. In that time, culturally, it wouldn't have been. Does, that, uh, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul's not saying ladies for all time, like if you came in and you're a female and you have a short haircut, you're all of a sudden unbiblical, nor is he saying that men, if you came in and you're rocking the man bun, that you have somehow gotten off the beaten path of what scripture would teach. What he's saying is that in that time, it conveyed something that went against God's good design for the watching world. Paul's looking out on the way God's designed things, and he's saying God's made men and women differently, and to deny that lacks common sense. And you gotta, you gotta have enough cultural wisdom to see how that applies in your context. If you go back to verse six, it says a wife, uh, if she will not cover her head, she just cut her hair short. Culturally, for a woman to have her, head, uh, cut, her hair cut short or her head shaved was a punishment for being unfaithful to your husband. So it was a public disgrace. What Paul's saying is, you, you wouldn't do that, would you? So why would you disgrace God and his church and even the angels by rejecting his very design? And that's what I think verse 10 is driving at. The angels are looking in on this just like the watching world around us. The angels marvel at God's work of creation and redemption. They love to see the way God's designed things to work. And when we engage that, they marvel and sing of the glory of God. And to be sure, there's a spectrum to all this, right? We're not just all cookie-cutter image bearers. And so uh, we're, we fall somewhere on the spectrum in terms of how we're designed. And we have to sort through those nuances. And I think community, smaller groups of community, pockets of community are helpful in engaging that. We don't have the space for that this morning. But yeah, we can look back at the creation story and get an idea of how God's designed us. The creation story helps us to see both the sleekness and the functionality that God's given us as men and women. And as we better understand his design, we can then step into this dance and do it well. Verse three, I said we were gonna end there. It's the crux of this passage. Verse three reveals to us this dance that's been going on since before the foundations of the world, and you and I are invited into it. Look at verse three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is, is God. There's a dance taking place here. Men, Paul says, I want you to understand that your head is Christ. You're not autonomous. You're not Tom Hanks and Castaway standing over the giant fire that you made, beating your chest going, look at what I have made. Like, that's not, that's not manhood. That's not biblical manhood. You belong to Jesus. You have what you have because of the generosity and grace of God, not because you made your way in the world, you have a head. You're a man under authority. You're not the ultimate authority. Jesus is, Paul says. Wives, the head of a wife is her husband. We talked about this. Basically, you're not the husband, but you are a strong helper to him. Without you, he can't dance the dance well. Without you, he looks like an idiot on the dance floor. He looks like someone trying to do the tango without a partner. There's a deep need for women in this narrative. But the most important piece is that Paul tells us the head of Christ is God. Wait, Jesus is under authority? Jesus is submissive? The king of the universe? We're told that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been involved in this eternal dance since before the foundations of the world. That world, that's what the, what the scriptures unpack for us. And part of that dance, 
ironically enough, is Jesus' glad submission to God the Father. Does that make Jesus any less important than the Father in dignity and value? Absolutely not. But the doctrine of the Trinity does go a long way in making sense of God's design of men and women. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in dignity, value, and worth, and yet with differing roles. Most people don't have a problem with the equality aspect. For most people, it's the differing roles piece that seems to belittle equality. But think about this for just a second. The Father, as it pertains to the gospel, plans our redemption. The Son then executes that plan of redemption through his life, death, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit applies redemption to the hearts of men. Now, imagine if the Father didn't engage in his role, what would Jesus do? There's no plan to engage, to execute, right? Or what if the Father planned uh, the plan of redemption and Jesus said, I'm not going to execute it? Or what if the Holy Spirit, after the Father had planned his plan of redemption and Jesus lived the life, died the death we deserve to die, and rose and conquered death, but yet the Holy Spirit didn't apply redemption to our hearts. Where would we be? You see the deep need for differing roles within the very Trinitarian God of the Bible, and yet there is equality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as it pertains to dignity, value, and worth, that Jesus submits to the Father, being a servant, pouring out his life, and yet he's co-equal to the Father. That's the gospel that Jesus followed the lead of the Father in this dance. He emptied himself for the mess of humanity. He was poured out for our mess, for our sin. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die, and he rose and conquered death. If we're honest, we, we stink at dancing. We don't live out our God-given design very well at times. We're like kids in a middle school dance. Like We're kind of trying to do the the awkward, like, three-foot rule, and I think I'm doing it right, God. Am I, am I doing it right? I'm not sure I'm doing it right. How's your dancing? Are you moving in accord with God's design? Or are you stumbling, falling down, going at this thing with two left feet? Let me show you this scene from a fairly well-known movie titled Scent of a Woman, Al Pacino. I'm going to talk over the, the scene as it's playing. Chino plays this blind guy, and this is the epic dance scene in the movie, and you'll notice that the two are in stride with one another, that uh, there's a need for a lead in this dance, and there's also a need for a partner. He'd look really stupid if he were out there leading with no one to hold on to, and, and yet you see the beauty of the dance as they're engaging in it. And you see the people looking in on it. It's meant to be missional in nature, to draw more people onto the very dance floor that they're standing on and dancing this dance. The reality is that God's inviting us into this dance. He's designed the world to work a certain way, and he calls us out onto the dance floor. And you and I, we're meant to showcase God's design for the very watching world looking in. The world deeply needs to see the church embrace the way that God has created the world and designed us and to own that for ourselves so that people looking in will see the glory of God on display and be drawn to his glory and to his character. That's our call. That's what we get to be a part of. That, that very image right there at a cosmic level. Kathy Keller, in her book, The Meaning of Marriage, as we close, husband of Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City, uh, she says this in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. She 
says both men and women get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority, Jesus in his sacrificial submission. By accepting our gender roles and operating within them, we are able to demonstrate to the world concepts that are so counterintuitive as to be completely unintelligible unless they are lived out by men and women in Christian marriages. And I would take that beyond marriage and say even the way God has designed men and women to interact with one another and to live out their very identity that they've been given by God. Do you get that? That, that both men and women, we get to play the Jesus role. We're not the hero, but in some sense, as we're being conformed into his image, we have a part to play that points people to Jesus. So I leave you with this question this morning. Are you dancing for God's glory? Jesus deeply wants to see you flourish. When we distort his beautiful design, we're not trusting in the finished work of Christ. The gospel empowers us to dance according to God's design. We get to leverage our lives as God's designed us for our families, for this city, for the church. What a great opportunity this week to engage this in community and to talk about how to flesh this thing out. If ever there's a call to engage in a community group, this would be it. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We do that here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, uh, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. As you come this morning and take of communion, just be mindful of the wonder and the beauty of the Trinitarian God, that you have one God existing in three persons, equal in dignity, value, and worth, and yet with differing roles that have accomplished salvation for us so that we could actually have hope in the midst of the mess, that that we could have beauty in the midst of our messy story. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.